This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, folks, back at you once again at the DLR Cast, the only podcast by and for fans of the mighty Diamond One, Diamond David Lee Roth. As always, I am joined in our journey going through the morass and the the avenues and wayward streets that is any news that we can find on Dave and Van Halen. I'm joined, of course, as always, with dangerous Darren Paltrowitz. Darren, how are you? We do have news, and we've had news, and it's been a pretty interesting last few days. Last few days? I'd say last two weeks. We've gotten about six years' worth of Van Halen news, uh, and, <laughs> and none of it was, like, helmed in the last four years. <laughs> I think I think you're you're reading my mind when I'm saying about the Dave's new song. Come on, that that was not recorded within the last six years. Oh, paint. Uh, well, let's start there. Painting with the moon showed up early Saturday evening, if I recall. Just showed up on YouTube. So let's get into the song. But it took a minute for it to get up on on Spotify and everywhere else. It was just as usual with this music, just with no advance warning or nothing, no details. The only difference this time. Uh, at least as far as the video is concerned, it's kind of a 3D video. You t- move your phone around when you watch or move your cursor around on YouTube. You can see different views of of uh, what seems to be Dave's kind of scratched wood painting motif, I guess. That's yeah. how it kind of looks to me uh, of the last his last paintings or images that we've seen up on social media. Yeah, I have uh, no doubt in my mind that this is a John 5 era track. Would you agree or do you say there's a a tiny chance that it was recorded in the last couple of years? I think it's a John 5 track, but probably worked on and worked on and who knows who might be on it. I mean, I was listening, trying to listen to the vocals and I went back and listened to Low Res Sunset, which when I when I go back, I realize I like that song more and more and more. And then I went back and listened to Giddy Up and Somewhere Over the Rainbow Bar and Grill. And it pretty much does sound to my ears very similarly. But there's parts of his vocals sometimes where I think, OK, was this rec- is this newer? I like the song. It's an odd song. I yeah. can't figure out the lyrics one way or another. I mean, jumping on a mattress. I'm not exactly sure what that's supposed to mean. And there's not really a hook per se a big chorus but you know i've noticed too that these songs are pretty short that we've uh, this one clocks in at just under just barely three minutes i think and i like it i really dig it that piano bit in the beginning is really cool and it it, dave dave's let's put it this way whether it's recorded in the last four years 10 years ago whenever the vocals sound great the vocals sound so great to the point that that's why i'm saying this was not recorded within the last eight years because we've we've talked about this at length on the podcast. That first 2007 reunion tour with Van Halen, his vocals were strong as ever. Absolutely. And then on a different kind of trip, the album, okay, it's fine. I mean, who knows how many takes? They they said it was three takes. That that's all he'll do in in the Roth leaks that came out. Uh, who knows what was edited digitally, but the 2012 tour, the vocals were not the strongest ever. And we know 2015, the vocals were definitely weak. And the the vocals were weak in Vegas, too, in 2019, 2020, that era as well. So I just can't imagine that the guy just suddenly revitalized his vocals 
magically out of nowhere in the last three years. That's how strong he was singing in 2012 and a couple of years before that. I can't disagree with you on that. We got to talk as far as the timing of this showing up because it comes, I don't think it's any coincidence and nothing with Dave. I don't think is, is a, is a coincidence given the control freak, the, yeah. how much that, 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 and that's, that's not a shot. That's a, yeah. that, that's a compliment that it's no coincidence. This came out right after the, within days of that Eddie, the, the former music journalist who struck up a, we talked about this in the last episode. I'm sure listeners yeah. know what we're talking about here. The former music journalist that struck up a conversation with Eddie via uh, emails through the years is that rollingstone.com printed. And yeah. then of course we also have the, that really a very interesting transcribed interview uh, with a supposed Dave and or Van Halen insider at the um, Van Halen Unchained podcast. So this was all in a week and all of a sudden, right, right about a week and a half. And then all of a sudden, boom, a new song comes out, which gets, which I'm sure got everybody wondering about the lyrical content. Did that mean anything? I don't know. I don't know if that really, I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think that any of Roth's, Lyrics are particularly autobiographical from his solo career. Well, to him, it probably means something. I'm saying I, I don't read into this that this has any that the lyrics have anything to do with what was talked about in those interviews. In as far as what was talked about in uh, the RollingStone.com piece with that guy, the former music journalist or the Van Halen, the uh, Van Halen Unchained podcast uh, interview. Well, where I'm going with that is I am assuming that this comes from the John Five batch of songs. Right. That USA Today article, he was calling those batch of those songs part of a jukebox musical. And then I don't know if it was that or another interview where he said, well, these were going to be the Van Halen songs and the Van Halens turned them down because they didn't hear it. And then after Eddie Van Halen died, he said he wrote it about Eddie or it was a tribute to Eddie. So it's like this, the story changed just a tad bit as to whether it's going to be for a Broadway musical <laughs> or a Van Halen album, or it was freshly written out of emotional tribute. So that said, when I say that Dave's lyrics are not autobiographical, I mean, they weren't atomic punk is not an, uh, an autobiographical song. Neither is mean street, <laughs> uh, but you know, in reading and listening to a lot of his interviews from the 80s and 90s, you know, just like Paradise is not an autobiographical song. And there's a lot of Dave songs where you think it's about a car, but it's about a woman or you think it's about a woman, but it's about a car. I think he's just big on the writing stuff and going, can this mean two or three things? Yes. Perfect. Sure. Sure. He. I dig the lyrics, even if I don't, I dig the lyrics all the time, even if most of the time I don't know what the hell he's talking about 95% of the time. So yeah. here's, here's something I realized the other day, and I looked it up earlier today. John Five never, never comments on any of these songs. He doesn't post about them on Instagram, not that I would expect him to, but there's really nothing in the news about it. Uh, the, the news of that broke, the news of this hit, you know, everything from, um, uh, you know, the other day there was a blabbermouth song, but I think they're a blabbermouth piece. I think they're using quotes from John uh, about talking about the recordings 
from a previous interview from and <laughs> from your interview. Yes, that's right. Excuse me. I, I was just scrolling down. <laughs> yeah. So kudos yeah. to you. But right. But I mean, as far as anything to do with, you know, no one's stuck. No, John five hasn't said, yeah, low res sunset. That was a lot of fun to record. anything about that. He's, he's been really mums the word, just the, the basics the very basics, I think, right about about recording the album, and I suppose there's not much he can talk about or is allowed to talk about, perhaps. I uh, my interview and at least one other one. He there's this one song he he talks a lot about called "Nothing Could Have Stopped Us," and he said that Dave sounds his best on his track. That that's his favorite of the tracks, but that one remains unreleased. I still stand my ground. It's not an album that was done in 10 days or anything like that. It was a bunch of sessions over time that kind of got dumbed down into being called an album because an insider in the Roth camp, uh, not the same person that's the deep throat from the unchained podcast, <laughs> different person that knows what's going on. They didn't think that the John five album was ever finished. They told me it's a bunch of mixes in different States and I, I saw some other article where they said that Dave had been tweaking it over the years. So it's, I guess, Dave's Chinese democracy, really. Oh, great analogy. Great <laughs> analogy. <laughs> as far as the length of yeah. As far as the length of time. Well, kudos to you for getting for getting that quote. Get, uh, being quoted in the the big blabbermouth piece yesterday. Right. But you do you asked a great question. And uh, whether John Five gets any notice at all, and he doesn't, that these songs are coming no. out, he doesn't, he doesn't at all. And I found I mean, that's not surprising at all, but I found that super interesting. And he talks about the recording sessions. I mean, he has given a lot of info on this, and your interview definitely does that. But still, it's just he doesn't have know what songs are going to come out, and I yeah. would bet he doesn't know. If he's if he's listening to this song, he's probably here. He might be hearing new stuff on it that he didn't hear the last time he heard the song. To to piggyback on what you just said, uh, as you like me have your music industry past, and one of the tools that's open to the public is you can search song catalogs of ASCAP and BMI, CSAC, some of the companies that handle all the copyrights for public performances of songs. Dave's catalog is so messed up when you go through track by track <laughs> this this song is not registered then there's songs where they just made up that he co-wrote it and then also when you go through the van halen stuff i think we've talked about this on the air you know how part of michael anthony's uh uh exit interview from van halen was waving his publishing to the 1984 album right well dave is a co-writer on eruption and the 1984 intro. Okay, are the other guys? Yes. Well, that makes sense because Eddie always split the publishing four ways. Every song on every album. Oh well, not 1984. Michael Anthony's taken off of that. But... Oh, okay. Well, and add Michael McDonald to all. Wait, excuse me, we yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Exactly. But uh, the people overseeing his catalog are just the eye is off the ball when it comes to registering the songs in a timely manner. So I'm not going to, I'm not saying he's losing tons of money, but the thing is he is losing a little bit of money by not keeping his catalog up to date because the stuff is not going to get paid out if it's not registered in a timely manner. Got it. So 
how many songs have been released so far, supposedly from the John Five sessions? There's five songs that were in the in the digital comic. Yes. And what do we have? Three now. Are we uh, pointing at the moon? Low res sunset. Giddy up. Four songs. And which which of the and um uh, alligator shoes? I believe. Well, I'm saying what was released separately from the comic. So we're, I, we're talking I, about seven or eight songs at least, right? Oh, uh, no, uh, no. Sunset I, Bar and Grill. Uh, those songs were all in the comic. I they believe were. Not That's five and all of them were there. So this makes number five or number six. This. Okay. All right. But we. I know- thought there was some instrumentals and stuff. That's what I was thinking of as far as the five. It's unclear if those are from the John Five album or those are incidentals because uh, a common misconception here is that the album Diamond Days is entirely covers when it actually, I believe, has two originals on there. And one of them is called Thug Pop, which John Five co-wrote. Right. And there's another song when I was looking through his BMI catalog registration called, I think, Pop Rocks and Coke. (laughs) I'm not sure where that is, if that's an instrumental that was made for this album i don't know pop rocks and coke does anybody else no but you know red oh red no it was red bull and pop tarts oh i'm looking you sent me you sent me a photo the other day and i'm looking at a screenshot i guess and it it says writer composer and i guess it's missing names in the screenshot right but red bull and pop tarts writer composer lowry comma john john five and performer david lee roth yeah i apologize for getting that name uh Incl- <laughs> you were close. They're, they're two <laughs> sugary things paired with a beverage. <laughs> this is the song Mountain Dew and Pop Rocks. Uh, <laughs> uh, the new song Dr. Pepper and Twix. Right. Yeah, I don't know if that was a song that was made for the John Five album or sessions, or if that's just the leftover from the Diamond Dave DLR band. Sessions, because I'm assuming that the song that's on the Diamond Dave album was a leftover from the DLR band album because it had three different guitarist writers on it. And I just I just pulled up as far as just to answer the the question that I should have known the answer to. We so far heard Giddy Up. Yeah. Somewhere Over the Rainbow Barn Grill, Low Res Sunset, Alligator Pants and Manda Bela from the comic, the, the, uh, uh, the Roth Project. Mm-hmm. From 2020 now, good lord, that's two years ago. And which, by the way, I th- we're like around our two year anniversary since we hatched this thing or came out somewhere. <laughs> it was in the summertime, I remember. What started yeah. as a conversation, one of our many conversations. Hey, this should be a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sometimes it feels like we've covered everything possible with Roth. But then the more interviews and the more things that come out is the more stories you feel still have to be documented. And uh, I, I figure. Once the John Five album comes, then we can end the podcast. Um, until that, that would be good with a big with a big podcast ending review dissection of the album. All right. Well, before we got let's we got some other stuff to get onto and and whether or not this we can see if this coincides with what we know with with the release of the song. But overall, I'll tell you when you listen to all these songs. Yeah. They all I really like the vibe of it all. And we knew it was going to be kind of this because John Five alluded to several years ago that it kind of had this acoustic country sort of vibe. I think you can call it Americana a little bit in some spots or whatever you want to call it. It is very acoustic. It is very 
I call it very laid back. I bet Dave could come up with some sort of apt descriptor, Americana, laid back. It's your low res Americana sunset vibe or some, you know what I mean? You can yeah. see throwing some fun words together like that. But that's kind of, I, I really dig it. There's no, cra- it's, it's not hard at all. There's no crazy solos. It just, it feels very, here's an overused word, but this is just pops into my head and I think it fits perfectly, organic. Well said. I can't top that. And when you think about his overall discography, there's nothing he did twice. And that continues the theme of this because Diamond Day was a covers album. Okay, the one before the DLR band, I guess you could say that's a return to form in a way. The album before that, Your Filthy Little Mouth, kind of a blues. There's a reggae track because you love No Big Ting. <laughs> there's, a- <laughs> there's some lounge stuff. And that followed, you know, that was actually a year before the Vegas show. And before that, A Little Ain't Enough, kind of all over the place. Nothing to do with Skyscraper, which was an electronic-ish, poppy album. Modern Had a modern sheen to it, kind of chasing the pop hit there, but s- still had that, yeah. that vineness to it. And then, of course, Eat em and Smile, which was just a complete ICBM out of... Uh, <laughs> out of the rock vaults, you know what I mean? Which has nothing to do with Crazy from the Heat, the EP, which is mm, almost like adult contemporary covers when you kind of think about it. Roth was going for the older audience with that album. He wasn't going for 15-year-olds when he put that album out. So he just changes it up. And I guess there's a lot to respect from the fact that he doesn't try to do anything twice except write a song that sounds like Hot for Teacher because there's there's a hot for teacher on more albums than. <laughs> Do you well, know what I'm talking about? You got Slam Dunk. <laughs> yeah, you got Slam Dunk. You got it's Showtime on a it little shows, bit of stuff. Right, right. You got. Um, I'm spacing on the name of the song on Skyscraper, but there, there's that fast up tempo a song which I can't even. Is it the second track on the record? Uh, so the bottom line. Got to have it. Yep. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So he always tries to break new ground except writing a new hot for teacher that's that's the inevitability i'm just (laughs) and it reminds me that a variation of the hot for teacher ending was on multiple uh, multiple van halen records the way eddie eddie had a trade that band had a kind of a trademark kind of flourish song ending yeah which was always cool but if you're living that stuff for a long time you go hey this yeah that's I'm expecting this. This kind of sounds familiar, at least in the big, the first six albums, right? Yeah. So, you know, we we don't know whatever is going to happen with the John 5 album. We don't know if there's going to be another single in two weeks, two days, two hours, two years. We don't know. But I, I agree with you. It's it's a good look. It's It's a cool album for especially an older artist that is not chasing hits. Right, right. And uh, just give us more, please. That's all I can ask. And we always see how many times on this podcast do we joke around either at the ending, but with with a lot of truth to us. And that is that is, hey, we could have a new track showing up tomorrow, folks. We'll be talking about it. And that's exactly what happened barely a week after we put out the last episode. And I as frustrating as that could be, I totally dig it because 
in a world that can be so predictable when it comes to rock and rollers, there's nothing predictable about anything to do with. The only thing that's predictable is that you're not going to know anything. And if yeah. you and if you think you know anything or you find out anything, well, you're you're going to end up question that an awful lot, too, as we have seen with this is a perfect segue to the <laughs> fallout to those two re, just alluded to two big pieces of news, I guess, the Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stone dot com piece followed or I'm not even sure the the time frame of it, which came first, if I recall, but the uh, Rolling Stone dot com piece and the Van Halen Unchained podcast with a supposed insider. Well, the Unchained, I'm going to say, predated it one or two days. It was really in a 48 hour window. We got that 72 hour window. We had the Eddie Trunk rumor, which I never heard anyone talk about uh, a second time. No one took super seriously on that one. So uh, if if it was a really slow news day, we would have done a whole episode about that Eddie Trunk rumor. But thankfully, we do not have to because it was squashed and there's bigger fish to fry. But yeah, um, I mean, one of our listeners was texting me uh, within a day of our episode posting and I, it kind of, we know we we're pretty sure who the deep throat is. I, I, I know it would not be in good form to just go like, Oh, it's that person. But, um, I just thought about that. Did, I mean, did you brainstorm about that? What, who, who that all was, or did you just go, I don't care. Good news. I'll take it. Um, I tried to a little, I, I did a little bit, but, I couldn't get hung up on that stuff because <laughs> because does it come with some sort of bias depending on who it is? I mean, from what when yes. you hear from when yes, you hear right. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's either from Dave's camp or Van Halen camp. Now, I don't know. Could how deep is Dave's camp? I mean, that's do you know what I'm saying? We just yeah. don't know. And the other thing I have to ask answer as well or ask is why now? Why would this happen at all? Right. Why would you why would you uh, unless you got some sort of offhanded blessing? And I mean, this uh, that it's I would encourage anybody to go check out that podcast because it's really there's a lot of great information there that, that, that this insider talks about. And you well, I certainly learned a lot of things. Yes. But I also the whole time I'm listening to it, wondering, all right, how much of this is is. Because clearly this is okay. Someone from Dave's camp. How much of this is yes. a little bit of spin? How much of this could be revisionist history? How much of this is is what we know to be present news or or accurate news or the last word of the story? Right, especially when it comes to, especially when it comes to when you read that RollingStone.com piece, because there's two different versions of how towards the last couple of years of Eddie's life that relationship with Dave was, especially around the twenty that last 2015 tour. Yes. Yeah. Um, originally, like the people that I was thinking well, were the deep throat source, I was thinking that it was two different managers that had worked with Dave because I thought, well, they knew the she and Vi stuff where, where it was a two album deal. That's something I'd never heard before. Did you ever hear that? No, I have not. So. I first thought, well, this is a person who was there at the beginning. And then I was stumped by going, well, the, this person knew the identities of the people who had the COVID uh, diagnosis. Uh, what, what would be the correct word for diagnosis, diagnosis but pluralized? Uh, diagnosis, I, diag 
they had the diag. Well, what, whatever it is, the, the people that were specifically sick, they knew that. So then you go, okay, so this is a person that knows the beginning. This is the person that knows the end. And then, you know, without saying who I think it is, I was doing the thing where you go, okay, they're talking about what a great piano player Dave is. <laughs> and I went, okay, so not a musician. That 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 came from a tip from right. a listener of ours named Eric. He was skeptical when, when the person said that Dave is a great 1930s-style piano player and that he's an excellent guitar player. You think he's a great guitar player. I think he's a really good guitar player, and Eddie pretty much confirmed that, unless that, in, in that Guitar World interview, I think it was for a different kind of truth, the one big interview he did. He confirmed that, but then those Eddie texts with Blair, the journalist, he's saying, I'm not allowed to say anything negative about Dave in these interviews, so you're the only person I'm saying this to. <laughs> so now you take that grain of salt out, but, but hearing what a great musician he is, you go... That person person's either a big apologist or that person's not a musician. And then you hear the parts to the basement. The stuff is in the basement. I well, that's how you that's how I immediately went. Oh, well, I, even before you got to that point, it just sounded like it was all it wasn't a neutral party. Yeah. So, you know, a new theory that comes to mind is did this person do this interview because they knew that the Rolling Stone piece was coming? Because hear me out for a second. The Rolling Stone article had a part where it said representatives for Van Halen, David Lee Roth, etc. declined comment. So they knew that this article was in the pipeline. I don't know if Rolling Stone gives you 72 hours or 24 hours or two weeks to get back. But Rolling Stone, after what it had happened with the college athletes, they will verify everything so that they don't get sued because there's been some bad libel cases over the years with Rolling Stone. So you would have to assume Van Halen has made, uh, Rolling Stone's made a lot of money off of Van Halen over the years with cover stories, anniversary editions, and whatnot. Uh, and then also you can argue Rolling Stone is being founded by Jan Werner, who, Jan Werner, who uh, founded the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's another way he wants to keep Van Halen happy in some form. Like the connections on all that end. So I don't see this as a thing where they gave Van Halen four hours to reply and ran with it. I think that they knew this article was coming. Was this insider beating it to the punch? Because let's face it, those date, those uh, Eddie texts do not make Dave look great. No, but man, how? Yeah, how does how do they find out that this thing is coming and what the context is? Because they were pressed for comment. Right. But do they they still it's not like, hey, this is what we're going to we're going to run with. Do you want to comment on this when you're if a reporter is reaching out? Is it more the case of we're running a story and kind of just some bare bones basics? You, uh, it depends on your ranking in this world. If if it were you or me, Rolling Stone would go, do you want to comment? Yes or no. You right. Got four hours. Well, they decline comment. If right. it's Van Halen and they have a proper publicist or something like that, they'll go, well, send us what the quotes are and we'll look at them. That, that's how it works at a bigger level. I've seen that happen with, with artists I've worked around and known where they actually get to look at the stuff before, like it's embargoed, but they get to look at the stuff and decide if they're going to comment on it. 
Yeah. I think they don't know the full depth of, of uh, well, first off, <laughs> who's the representative they get in contact with, right? And I'll, I'll tell you that stuff if, if you want. Because <laughs> you got to remember, what was uh, Eddie's widow's profession? Publicist. Publicist. Um, I've, oh, I've, no, I'm talking about Dave, though. Oh, Dave, everything goes through his accountant, Jerry. Okay, but if, does Rolling Stone know to, know that? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Somebody yeah. there, I would imagine, has to, or how to get a hold of this person. Yeah, on on the website on davidleyroth.com. It, That's it, right. Jerry's contact there. Then also, um, whenever like Dave does something scandalous or, or big, and people ask for comments, they if it's the bigger outlet, if Fox News, they got an exclusive comment on the Vegas dates being camped canceled i think entertainment weekly did and i think rolling stone i i'm pretty sure only three places got like an, a personalized comment beyond what went on one went up like the and call me when you're ready to do the wildfires benefits he tacked on an extra line for those outlets right right man the pot stirs yeah, well, all this also goes against something he was saying when he, I think it, it was the Mark Marin interview, I think, where he said he gave up his cell phone and he doesn't have a cell phone. And he just if he wants something, he has a phone number he could call and then the car comes comes to get him or whatever. Like this deluxe Dave concierge service. Yeah, I don't buy that based on he how he calls from a landline. He still has a landline. <laughs> So, so do we, but that's a different story for a different time. Uh, <laughs> um, I just don't buy the story that Dave doesn't have a smartphone, seeing how fast he responded to the, the Lucather tribute tour rumors thing, because he got that out same night. And, right. and these things are written in his voice when they come back. And I think it was Linda Reisman, Reisman, still don't know how to say her last name. Um, there was an imposter <laughs> Dave back in January on Facebook that was responding in the Facebook group. And you just would only know it if you looked at like the one character difference in the like username and like, oh, that's a fake Dave. I said to her, come on, Dave's not on computers. And she said, no, Dave always had top of the line computers and was always ahead of the pack. And when you think about it, Skyscraper recorded on computers to an extent. Right. And I bet you all that artwork is on is taking up terabytes worth of uh, storage in in the Apple iCloud, right? I mean, he's got some graphics, some great graphic stuff, and and uh, well, for goodness sakes, he did a digital comic for God's sakes, working hand in hand with the top top line top people who put those sorts of things together. So enough of that. Of course, he's got a cell phone. Yes. Uh, so who knows what the story behind that one was, but. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see if any rebuttals come out from these leaks. Like these leaks are super anti-Sammy. And Sammy says he made amends with Eddie shortly before his passing because George Lopez introduced them or something like that. Or he got the number from Azoff's office or something. If he he doesn't mention, if Sammy doesn't, has he talked about, I have, I mean, I haven't seen anything pop up, but yeah. has Sammy mentioned anything from the Rolling anything from the Rolling Stone article? I mean, the two things where he's been uncharacteristically quiet about is the tribute rumors, yeah, which did not include his name hardly, 
and this latest go round of stuff with that rollingstone.com article uh he's been ultra quiet about that but as a writer i've gotten two or three press releases from uh team sammy in the last three weeks uh one to announce his new restaurant in florida um, one for his Sammy's Beach Bar cocktail company and one for his cookbook or cocktail recipe book. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, he's not slowing down any of that. And he's on tour a lot of the summer with George Thorogood and his band, The Circle, which includes Michael Anthony. I've, I've seen some comments from him on things. Um, he, I'm assuming Sammy has a full-time person's who, who a full-time person whose job is just comment thanks brother on on articles happy birthday bro brother because he's on fire lately with like responses of like bob weir eats dinner and then it's like yo bro like i i don't think sammy hagar's on instagram all day but i think somebody in team hagar is Right. I, I've seen him post. I've seen him comment on different things on different posts that people I follow. And it just uh, when I see those little things that just he saw it and he did, made a quick comment. Right. Mm, you can have multiple uh, people logged into an Instagram. Oh, yeah, sure. You can. Yeah. <laughs> but I, some I, of them read like it could be him. I mean, it's, it's, some of it's just very innocuous. It's some guitar player or something that he did. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Where it's not yeah. even a big piece of news. It's somebody who's just put, posting some live footage or whatever. I mean, I can't think of any specific examples, but I've seen this on more than one occasion with a couple people I follow. And yeah. I, it always felt like to me it was like, oh, yeah, you saw this late at night and went, hey, good job, brother, whatever. Yeah, so he's not commenting on this, but he's very public through social media and promoting his restaurant cookbook and cocktail line <laughs> lately. I, I guess we should just wait for that one interview where somebody goes, so Sammy, how's your new tour going? Your tour is going great. By the way, what did you think of that Rolling Stone article? <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting <laughs> for, because Sammy loves Eddie trunk. Um, I'm, I think he'll do a trunk interview or a, Who's on a short list of people that he's always on? Does he do the Jeremy White show? Because Michael Anthony's done it twice in the last like year and a half, two years. Uh, who else is on the Hagar junket list? You're you're approved because you're not going to say anything positive about David Lee Roth during the interview. Those journalists, man, I'm not even sure. I just. I, I, I mean, I'm trying to think the last time he did a full, a really big interview as opposed to just here and there quotes and stuff like that right there was one with a public a website or a youtube series in brazil or somewhere in south america i'm gonna say a year and a half ago and that was around the time when he was pushing the birthday bash pay-per-view it was the first time they ever had to do it isolated as opposed to at cabo wabo um oh oh it's july okay october is when the Cabo Wabo birthday thing is he's going That's to right. press. Mark my words. We're getting Sammy comments within the next five weeks. <laughs> calendar that one. <laughs> you just look at the calendar because also October is the month of Eddie's passing. So right. there, there is going to be a microphone in his face. Cause as you, I think you have the quote, um, he's never met a microphone that he hasn't wanted to speak into unless it's mine. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I got turned down by three other people for a Hagar interview. That's why I'm saying that. Yeah, you're running a good streak there. <laughs> oh, for seven. The last one I know for a fact got to his desk. So. More speculation, I guess, more wondering what happens next. Is yeah. there any is there anything else that this insider hasn't said or will say again or will? Do you know what I mean? Is it, I, I, I can't wait to hear the and I don't know if there's been a new episode since I can't wait to hear if they have if the if the friends, if the folks over at the Van Halen um, Unchained podcast have any have any anything after that. What do you know what I'm saying? If yeah, I'm real curious to know what their what their mailbag sounds like, too. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. The mailbag should be very interesting that the person I'm pretty sure is the source. When I interviewed them a couple of years ago, note I did not use a gender pronoun, just like they did not use it. <laughs> uh, when I interviewed them uh, a couple of years ago, that person said that they would like to do a second interview with me and ghosted me. So I am, that is one of the reasons I've, that person also said not to use the audio of the conversation with them after we taped the interview with them. <laughs> so that that further added to my suspicion as to this, why this person is who this person is. Wow, okay. Yeah, All right. if you're gonna do one of those Venn diagrams and you go again, was around in the early days, knows what's going on now, nice things to say, not a musician, has been in the house plenty to know what's in the basement, my experiences with people around this and do not quote the gender of this individual. If you put that on a Venn diagram, it's the answer is hidden in plain sight as, as to who it is. Okay. <laughs> with, without us getting sued for libel or slander in the 0.001% chance I'm wrong about that one. <laughs> Interesting. To say the least. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I'm I'm very optimistic, though, that the Van Halen archives are going to open up. Like, did you hear the rumors that earlier this year, Don Landy and Alex were spotted at a mixing studio? Yes. And this leak said um, the box set guy, the guy who worked on that curating that early 2000s box set is not allowed to talk about it anymore. Heard that, too. I think I may have heard that from you. Yeah, um, um, uh, hmm. I think stuff is going to have to come out. And if it's not this year, you know about those like 50 year copyright reversion releases. Oh, right. Hmm. Yeah. So something's going to happen, whether or not we want it or they want it to happen. Something's going to happen. And something's got to give. And like Kiss, for example, have you been seeing these unearthed videos that have been popping up from the mid 70s the past couple of weeks? Well, I saw that. And then today I saw something pop up on. Is it called VW Music? I think uh, it's a website, a blog. First, I saw it on the, on the uh, Kiss podcast, Three Sides of a Coin Facebook page. Mm -hmm. This Pro Shot Asylum tour. Mm hmm concert popped up from from a tv i guess a tv station was filming it in somewhere down south and if you're a fan of kiss 
non-makeup era years, there that's like a big missing hole. There's very few recordings. There was no home home video VHS tape like there was from the Animalized Tour. Asylum had the the biggest stage of that era, the boldest colors, the most yeah. ridiculous outfits. I mean, there's a pro there. I, there's been a pro shot forever. I used to have it on VHS of I think it was uh, the Hot in the Shade tour, and it was. Uh, from Detroit, I think, Kobo Arena, you know, like yes. I mentioned, you have animalized, there's creature stuff. I mean, but so, so, but that's not coming from Kiss. Kiss has been putting out their own soundboard stuff. But then that other, yeah, you're right, the rehearsal footage. And then there was something from, was it the, not the Love Gun, was it the Love Gun tour? I've seen two in the last couple of days, but I've only watched but the, them. There bottom line, there's been some really good stuff coming out. Well, there was a Japan one and then there was a Houston one. I, th I think it was Houston. Maybe it was like 76, 77. And these are perfect video shot things. So I see those. And then what keeps coming up on my YouTube are these shows from 83 from South America, Van Halen, where it's like the whole show. And it goes, that makes me think like, were these broadcasts on local television? Just like the Us Festival is broadcast on Showtime. What I'm getting at is I think that a lot of stuff was taped but the right people have been sitting on it for a long time. I was just going to say, I kid you not. I was thinking of this. I think for Van Halen, I would be shocked if somewhere there was someone knowing how visual they were and how Dave kept the visual end of things. So, I mean, kept an eye on all the visual end of things. You mean to tell me like when they did a full concert run through a rehearsal, I mean, and, we saw what they did for the reunion tour that that was yeah. out there. But you mean to tell me from anywhere from fair warning or 1984, any of that stuff, they didn't full on tape the, the last dress rehearsal, the last full on run through of the set. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. like it just reminded me that on cheap tricks, YouTube page, there's about four or five videos uh, from 1980 of just rehearsal footage with P Kamita, the guy who was between Tom Peterson and John Brandt. And yeah. it's just them running through their set. I think before, I, I, actually, I'm sorry, it was 1981, I think it was. Before, I, so I, if I remember correctly, I think it may have been before like a big Chicago Navy Pier show that later got broadcast on PBS. But it's amazing. But there's, yeah. it's just one camera set up in the middle of this rehearsal hall. You don't get any close-ups. It's just somebody set a camera and hit record. And, you know, some of the footage, them just walking around and whistling and Rick's trying on a guitar and, it's so it's there's no editing and cheap trick put that up there years ago when they were really good at populating their YouTube channel. So, so many bands tape this stuff. Here's the band that was so Dave was so attuned to what was going on visually and how they should look right. I mean, that was his show and what they should and how they should move and what they do on stage. Even I, th I think to a degree that, I mean, you know, when they would come dancing up to the front, right. Yeah. With and and Eddie and Sam, uh, oh my God, Eddie and uh, and Michael were flanking Dave. You know that kind of jumping. That you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. All that that stuff was figured out in advance. It didn't just happen naturally in a show, right? I mean, same, yeah. right? Exact word I'm looking for. So there's not a videotape somewhere, some somewhere in the basement, right? Giving giving an exact precise example. Have you ever seen the documentary, The Lost Weekend one, produced about that MTV concert winner, uh, contest winner from like 84, I think it was? Yes. And we talked about it on an episode. I I have, I mean, I saw it years ago when it first came out, uh, but 
But you're telling me the camera was not rolling that entire show. They they just went, okay, we're only going to turn the camera on for these five minutes. <laughs> Come on. There was a camera crew there. And an earlier interview that we had with Joe Whiting, who opened up a bunch of shows in the Diver Down Tour, he said that Van Halen roadies gave him the soundboards to a bunch of the shows. <laughs> so... You know, is it that the right bidder has to come along to open up the Brinks trucks? Or is it all just mothballed in someone's attic or basement in the case of Dave? I don't know. But And does everything and 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 does nothing get released while people are still alive? That unfortunately, at least I should say, does nothing get surreptitiously leaked while people are still alive? Stuff will get leaked. Stuff will absolutely get leaked because seeing the number of things that came out after Eddie passed, it was like an 800% increase right. in YouTube content. The lips right. videos from Europe that we never knew existed. Right, right. Yeah. I guess the question is, um, who's the pissed off person that feels ripped off and then <laughs> decides to leak it so- out of revenge? So one more thing before we get to this week's stellar, awesome interview that we've had in the can. And I joke around. I say this every episode because I love the line, but also it's true what we do here. We don't we might not educate, but we always speculate. And I don't want to give a bad connotation to that word because it's really us just trying to figure it out because we are unbelievable fans. Right. As are the people who are listening. Yeah. Going back to the insider interview, going back to what we what we've heard and what you've heard. Mm hmm. Las Vegas, post Las Vegas, going back to just a couple of weeks ago with Dave at LAX airport. How's his health? Yeah. Um, he clearly is denying publicly that he's in bad health. But I, uh, like when that reporter LAX goes, can you sing? And he did that whistle, multi-tone whistle thing right. none of us can normally do. That somebody was speculating is because he has polyps on his vocal cords. Well, what, whatever it is, you know, he's not telling you he's sick aside from that impromptu newspaper interview in Vegas where he said, my team, my medical team advises that every time I go on stage and the Marlboro man. And aside from those, he's never, ever said anything. Maybe in his memoir, he said he's in pain every day. But that was 1997. That was 25 years ago. Right. I I think without a lot of news and if well prior to the last couple of weeks, especially that LAX video, I think it was it would be easy to picture this guy hunched over and frail living a Howard Hughes type life, right? right? <laughs> in a in a mansion with no furniture and an Opal Cadet front end hanging from the hanging from the entryway and just painting and stuff. But I just saw it come up again too. I mean, he certainly over overalls aside, he certainly looked healthy in the most recent Rogan interview, which was what, 2021, just last summer. Yeah. Um he physically healthy, not not mentally healthy. Well, <laughs> that was the most drivel, unlistenable Dave interview I think I've ever heard. I gotta you can't tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> there it was hard, man. It was yes. hard to keep track of that stuff. I thought the Marin interviews were hard enough. It was it was hard. It's <laughs> you got to work to glean some nuggets out of some of those, right? Yeah. When I took notes on that, that I'm like, I'm doing this for Steve. I'm doing this. for. 
<laughs> that was painful. But yeah, physically he's fine. He's missing a tooth. But hey, who isn't missing a tooth at this age? And, and, and listen, and we already know, and he's brought it up, and we've talked about it before. I mean, he's had mo- probably multiple surgeries, back surgeries, replaced a hip or a knee or something. I mean, yeah. basically, if it if it had anything to do with 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 gravity and landing off a drum riser. He yeah. probably heard it and had to and had to get it fixed. Yeah. And and that is if if you reread the the crazy from the heat book which I crazily did a couple weeks back, a lot of it is about the pain that he's in and the injuries and all that. And then no monk's book thought that Dave was going to be injured or crippled by a certain year in time and the more you think about it, the more you kind of hear that that when you do all those kicks and those splits it okay he's flexible as can be but doesn't mean his form was pretty uh he was he was doing it because he had to he felt that obligation as the showman i have to do that stuff not because it's what he felt in the moment that was his choreography right hot for teacher the kick goes up there the side right oh absolutely and i was thinking i was thinking the other day actually and i'm reminded of this because i saw a 77 year old rod stewart friday night in (laughs) concert with cheap trick opening and for a 77 year old guy rod's moving pretty good moving around he was never a david lee roth guy but he's jogging across the stage he was never a david lee roth as far as kicks and all that stuff but he was jogging and running across the stage a lot and but it, it reminded me of that from if you look at footage from the 2007 reunion to a different kind of truth the 2015 there's a he there's his activity on stage definitely has slowed down yeah my a friend of mine who's not a van halen diehard he's a fish diehard which you know i'm sorry yeah i know exactly cut him some (laughs) slack there he i think he saw the 2012 tour of van halen and you know instead of roth doing the high kicks it's just like he's lifting his his knee like a little bit above stomach level and people are like, Ooh, you know, as opposed to if you're seeing him on the 2004 tours, 2003, 2004, the diamond Dave era, it's like he was doing a whelp every 15 seconds. He was doing a high kick every 20 seconds. Like that Finland video in 99, it was, you you thought you were looking at a 22-year-old and not a 48-year-old. At a certain point, it slowed down understandably. But well, I, Of course. I, I guess the pressure is on him to be Diamond Dave, and that's maybe why he's not out in public as much. He can't do that. You know, nobody at that age can do that. Well, I think he's not out. In, I mean, do you mean public appearances? Yeah. In other words, if your gimmick is like charisma and energy and flexibility oh, right, right. Arts, versus your gimmick is like your Morrissey. All you have to do is kind of be grumpy, <laughs> grumpy. And you don't talk to people and you don't like people and you're sarcastic. You could do that until you die. <laughs> right. Right. Well, there was certainly, there, there's certainly a gradual evolution as we saw. It, and it, that was by, by design and by physical necessity, right? Here comes the dance floor. We're going to do more of this. I mean, and you get that. You have to understand no one's going to move at 65 the way they did at 25, 35, 45, or even 55, right? I mean, for the most part, most people aren't. 
and save for maybe Mick Jagger. And it's yeah. not like Dave ever let him get himself out of shape. Injuries, he, it's, he was a high impact front man. <laughs> you know? and, that's, and, and there's dues to be paid for that. Yeah. So, you know, putting on that amount of empathy, I get it. And I understand and all that. I just wish he would upfront tell us. I'm in pain. I'm taking it slow. Here's what I'm doing. Just basic things like that. And then if he did that, we wouldn't have to dig through his trash metaphorically, not literally. We wouldn't have to. Well, he kind of I mean, he kind of did that in his own way with those announcements around Vegas, my team of doctors and that sort of thing. So he, he put it out there in somewhat in a typical muddled fashion that there's these reasons. Of course, it's also during a pandemic and people wondered about COVID and everything else. And and he's got good reason at that age also to be very wary of it. And I get the precautions you have to take. And I'm still uh, that whole thing is still a, a strange mystery to me that it nev- nothing ever got rescheduled. Nothing ever that it was ju- the plug was just like completely pulled. But we discussed that ad nauseum in, in previous episodes. It, it's it's that. He said, I'm retired. And we went, oh, he's retiring. And then he announced like five more shows. And then he's put out a couple of singles since then. And, well, he, and he's recently disavow- kind of disavowed, right? And, and that, that retirement so, with, the, with, the, with the stuff around the tribute. In Mexico. And he's yeah. like, tribute. So, uh, and then the, um, oh, well, you know, I... I uh, Rocky had this many retirements of Rambo. Did we talk like I'll make this really quick if we didn't. But did we talk about a quote from his from the slaughterhouse zine that I found from 1997? He said, like, I threaten retirement four times a day and then threaten to unretire five times a day. It's something like that. And he was saying that in 97 or 98. Retirement can take many forms. You retire from touring. You retire from regular touring. You retire from yeah. right. You retire from touring globally. I mean, yeah, Judas Priest, we're looking at you. You got you. You got to leave the door open a little bit because I'm not. Listen, I am not going to denigrate anyone who still wants to get out there and get it done, if their reasons are pure because they still enjoy doing it, and they got to figure that out. And there's, we you've seen the template for older aging rockers, and the audience is pretty damn forgiving. Agreed. Well. Speaking of people who haven't retired, you see what I did there? Uh, <laughs> this week's interview, Bob Barlett yes. worked on and co-wrote some of the songs on the DLR band album because he is and was a John Five comrade. Um, Ozzy was on his list of credits. Bob, um, Rob Zombie. I, I almost said Bobby Zombie because you, do you know those comedians, Tim and Eric? Oh, Tim and Eric, great show. Yeah, exactly. Awesome job. Great show is the name of uh, the show. They had this this like fake sitcom. It came out at the beginning of the pandemic called Beef House. It was like a full house parody. And I'm going to say three times in the eight episodes, they kept calling Rob Zombie Bobby Zombie. And me and my wife just can't get enough of Bobby Zombie. And uh <laughs> Bob Marlette did work with Rob Zombie, Black Sabbath, Roth, some cool people there. 
Yeah, he's got definitely got a great resume, and you asked him some great questions. Talks about a bit about the DLR band record, and there's some definitely some mysteries around that record <laughs> as far as its recording. So, kudos to you. Well, thank you. I, you know, Bob was a super super nice guy to speak with. Very busy. Um, a number of people have been willing to speak with us about the podcast, and then when you actually pin them down, then they kind of ghost you. So we're still trying to figure out whether that was a 10-day album, like Dave has said, which I really don't think it was on any level, a 10-day. Still trying to figure out if it was done in Vancouver, like um, that insider said, which I don't, you and I are, we, we don't think it was Vancouver, right? It was in L.A.? L.A., yeah, and damn it, I should have pulled it. Why do I always have Florida? It was Some of it was recorded in Florida. Maybe rehearsals happened there because he rehearsed his Vegas band for the 95 run in, in Florida. Okay. And yeah, that's the that's the closest thing I can think of with, with Florida. I can't picture Dave being a long-term Florida guy. Like, I know Iggy Pop weirdly lives in Miami, or at least he was. I think it was because he can walk around without a shirt all day. That was one of the reasons. Right, right. I just know that he, <laughs> Dave is a Florida guy. Like, maybe... He wanted to learn how to play Latin percussion and practice his Spanish. And he did that for six months and then he got out of there. <laughs> or maybe he's recording Sunrisa Salvaje too. <laughs> well, on that note, you got the reference in. Enjoy the interview with Bob Marlett. <laughs> Anything else you want to add about it? <laughs> Nothing but yeah. All right. Well, as always, thanks for downloading and listening, folks. And you could uh, reach out to Darren directly. You can hit him up at the Poucherlcast on YouTube. You can hit him. You can hit us up directly at the DLRcast at Outlook.com and or on Twitter. DLRcast is on Twitter. Yeah, if it's a cease and desist or a libel thing, send it to the podcast one, not, not <laughs> me. Uh, Steve has to share in some of the responsibility for fake naming this this insider but um if you saw no. if you if you saw david ralph's reach out in in pasadena reach out to darren directly oh yeah yeah then we'll build up a case on that one but no no, no. <laughs> thanks for listening steve thanks for putting this together and yeah much gratitude my, here my pleasure my friend Aside from tech troubles, good day for you so far. <laughs> so far, I can't complain. Life is good. I uh, I did all my uh, morning checkup on my beloved Patriots and just see where we're at on the draft and all, all is good. So there you go. It is such a pleasure to speak with you because I've been listening to your music for decades because not only did you do one of my favorite David Lee Roth albums, but the Halford stuff and the Alice Cooper stuff, et cetera. But what I read was you started off as a session player that fell into producing. Is that correct? Or is that Wikipedia lies? It, it, well, it's, it, you know what the truth is? It's, it's a little bit of everything because I actually started out as just a band guy. And um, then uh, uh, I met uh, my future bandmates, uh, Rudy Sarzo and Frankie Benelli from uh, Quiet Riot. And we put a band together in my parents' basement in Lincoln, Nebraska. And then we started like touring the Midwest. And after a, a couple of years of doing that, you know, the, the three of us were like, you know what, we got to move to LA. 
So the three of us moved to LA and started another band in, uh, in uh, LA with uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who was uh, Tony Childs, who used to be signed to, uh, uh, I think it was, she was on A&M or whatever. Yeah, Tony, T-O-N-I, I remember yeah. that name, yeah. And that was my girlfriend at the time. And we were in a band together for a while. And then um, when uh, Tony and I broke up, the band broke up and, and then, and, and from there, it sort of, it, it kind of turned into, um, I started getting calls to, to come play on people's records. And, and so I was a session player for a few years. And then um, uh, I joined, uh, I played piano for Al Stewart for a, a, a while. And that sort of led me into, um, it, it was all essentially just evolution. It was just, you know, you start out way over here. And because when I was a kid, I didn't even know what a producer did, you know? Right. How and many was, kids these days yeah. know what a producer does? They just say beats and yeah, they, yeah. that's it. <laughs> so true, so true. So, uh, and, and, you know, from there, it just was like, you know, I, I was, um, for a lot of the early years, I was um, the kind of, I, I co-produced with a, a the guy who sort of really, helped me get my real start in producing uh, David Kirschenbaum. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how I ended up, you know, playing on Tracy Chapman and, you know, and, and then he brought me in co-producing with him. And then uh, that just evolved. And then he just sort of, um, he wanted to do other things. And so then I was like, well, you know what, I'm going to just start producing and everything just sort of started going, uh, Actually, that was, that was one of one of the interesting stories. I uh, so when Kirschenbaum, because David and I had been co-producing stuff, mm -hmm. and David got the um, Tracy Chapman record, and I was supposed to do that with him, but I had just gotten a call to um, uh, go up north and produce the reunion record of Santana. Mm -hmm. Because I had worked with Greg Raleigh from Santana and he called me up and said, hey, you want to come up north and uh, do this record with Carlos? And I'm like, uh, of course. I mean, I love Santana when I was a kid. And Greg Raleigh was a, a big influence back in the day. And uh, yeah. And his work so, with Journey, also awesome. Yeah. And then I, you know, through that, I ended up working with a lot of the Journey dudes and all that kind of stuff. So, it, you know. I've always said that the the path was more pretty pretty simple because it, it was more of a case of when the phone rang, I answered it and I said yes, you know. So whatever the gig was, just do it and you'll figure it out later. So there you go. The more people I speak with who've worked with David Lee Roth is the more ties I see to Santana and Journey. Like for example, do you know Ron Wixo, the drummer? Uh, I think. I think so. You he, know, he was Roth's touring drummer in 94, but he was in the storm before he oh, got that gig. He, he had come in later, I think, on, on the storm. And, and yes. but I, I think I did. I think the second storm record that I did, he 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 worked on that one, too. So, yeah. Uh, and how did he get that gig with the storm? I think it was through Jufra, Jafra, however you say that bad name. And how did he get that? It was through the softball game, which had all those guys that like were REO Speedwagon, Journey, Adjacent, all the AOR bands played in this like 
Sunday softball game in, I think, Santa Monica or somewhere in L.A. Oh, wow. Yeah, but, I, I, I was too busy working to play softball. So, <laughs> But another distinct thing about you besides your great production and the great albums that you worked on is that you co-wrote material on a lot of these albums. So when you were co-writing, is it kind of like I'm in the room making tweaks or do you do pre-production and the songwriting is part of it? Um, you, you know, it was all of the above. I mean, there, you know, some of the scenarios I, I would just simply write the song and then they were, you know, were like, dude, this demo sounds amazing. Can you come and do our record? And I'm like, sure. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. so, it, you know, cause I'd been, I was that, you know, honestly, it, I think naturally a lot of the, you know, production and, and, you know, the evolution of everything came from, when I was a kid, I was, I was always the guy who I didn't know just my parts. I knew your parts, I right. knew his parts, I knew everybody's parts. And I, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was just always into writing songs and, and just sort of figuring out the, the, the sort of construction of, of all things music. And, and so I just, I, you know, would always just sort of listen to every single aspect of everything. And, and you know, because that's honestly, I tell people, you know, because a lot of people think, you know, that that I came up through engineering, mm-hmm. but it was the opposite. It was engineering just facilitated what was going on in my head. You know, a lot of times I, you know, I'd right. be on a, uh, on a record and, and um, I go, that just doesn't sound right. You know, right. it's like, you know, and I literally, you know, it's like, uh, what does this button here do? You know, <laughs> it's like, don't touch that button. I'll buy error. <laughs> yeah. And, and I just sort of slowly figured out everything and did sort of the math on everything. And, and I, I, that was just sort of the everything, you know, in my career has pretty much been sort of just the evolution of, of just, I, I love music and I love every aspect of everything. And, and I just, I, I love people. And I love working on these records and, uh, and it, you know, sort of just kept going and going and going. And, and like I said, I mean, in a, in a lot of respects, part of the thought process was I never wanted to be trapped or at the mercy of, somebody who wasn't getting their job done or wasn't you know so Mm -hmm. I just learned how to do every single thing so I it you know was sort of a safety net for me of you know it's like hey man I can do pretty much any kind of record that you know I I sort of felt like doing at that moment so that's why you know when people look at the discography they're like dude, I thought you were a rock guy, you know? And it's like- Yeah, Al Stewart, as you said at the beginning of it, and Tracy Chapman, who, yes, it's technically rock because there's booze, but- There were so many, it's like Wilson Phillips, Cheryl Crow, just like endless sort of all sorts of different stuff. And I just, you know, just always loved everything, so. So that one album that I keep bringing up, the DLR band album, I have to ask you about that because the little information that's out there is all from Dave's perspective, a little bit of John Fye's perspective. And I don't feel that we've gotten the true story about a few things 
on that. Like, for example, they say it was recorded in 10 days. I don't see how that was possible because there's like three batches of songwriters and multiple guitar players. Like there was the Mike Hartman stuff, there's the Terry Kilgore stuff, and there's the John Five stuff. So was it a mix of sessions, not just 10 days, as they said? I, I hate to say this to you, but I don't really know. I don't, I don't really know. Cause at the end of the day, you know, my, the most vivid memories I have of that whole time period was I was mixing the, uh, I think it was Black Sabbath or I was doing something with Black Sabbath and, and wow. Dave used to, you know, it's like, I'd be working and, and he, cause I, I, I used to be, I used to sort of be all the time at Henson Studios, the old A&M studio oh. that became Henson. Everything in Dave's world revolves around Henson Studios. Yeah. yeah. And so I was, you know, I was working, I think, like I said, I think it was Black Sabbath, but he would be across the street at Crazy Girls, the strip club all the time, right? And, it, you know, when, when he got bored over there, he'd you know buzz over and it's like hey dude can I come over and hang out and it's like sure okay and so I'd be working and he'd come over and he'd just sit there and sort of talk to me while I'm like trying to mix this record and chit chat about stuff and he was just such a hoot it was always just you know so funny working with him because he was a, a real character but I, I would say you know most of most of my involvement with that, you know, was sort of because I didn't in, end up, I didn't engineer or produce anything on that. That was all just songwriting, you know, because right. um, and that was through that whole thing started because, uh, you know, John Five had been like, you know, one of my best friends for 30 right. plus years. And and John was like, hey. Dave called me up and what do you think about doing this? I'm like, sure. Okay. So we, uh, we just started writing tunes and coming up with ideas and stuff. And, and then uh, that's how, you know, then Dave and I started knowing each other through that. And, and then he would come visit the studio and stuff, but um, you know, it's, you know, that's one of, you got to remember, it's like, I, I was just thinking about that. One of the hardest things about doing interviews like this is that I've done so many records. And yes. so many, it was like trying to remember, you know, cause it's always, you know, people are always like, tell me, you know, what snare did you use? Oh. on?" Like, dude, I can't even remember yesterday's snare, you know, it's like, and, and people are grilling me for inside info on stuff. And I'm like, man, I, you know, right. It, and it's funny because the way I look at it is I'm, I'm very immersive. Like when I'm on that project, that is the most, you know, center of my universe and the most important thing in the universe. But the second, I, the second I'm done, next. I'm on to the next record. And it's like everything about that, you know, it's, it's that, that when I'm grilled for stories on Tracy Chapman, right. I'm like, I did two records with her, but it, it, on that first record, we had no idea, zero idea that that was going to do what it did, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I sort of had to go back and try to remember 
you know, shit that happened on that record because people, oh, sorry. Um, what's the language? Uh, oh, just, be yourself. That That's okay. the language. <laughs> right. So, it, it, you know, people were always grilling me. It's like, oh, man, tell me what this was like. I just sort of go back and sort of remember like sort of anecdotal and things about making that record because it was just, like I said, it was just a, right. was another record in the slot. And, and it was actually, I didn't even know that it, and it was becoming so successful. It was actually my buddy, Randy Jackson, who, you know, called me up more like, dude, you know, that thing's huge. And I'm like, what thing, you know? <laughs> and he's like, Oh dude, Tracy Chapman. I'm like, Oh, no way. Cause, <laughs> and I always tell people, Anybody that says that they knew that that was going to be huge are lying because <laughs> no one knew. Everybody thought it was a great record. Right. But that wasn't, you know, there's a big difference between that's a great record and that's going to be huge. You know, right. and I've always said that about record making. It's like, you know, in that moment, you may think it's the best thing you've ever done, but People let you know, man. People let you know whether it's working or not, you know, so. But going back to that DLR band album, you co-wrote more songs than anybody on that album because you were on the tracks that John co-wrote. You were on tracks that I'm looking at the credits here. I think there's a Terry Kilgore track that you have a co-write on. But bottom line is like, do you remember Slam Dunk, for example? That song's kind of like Hot for Teacher Light. Do you okay. that that actually it's funny you say that because that's probably the only song on that whole record that I actually remember anything about. <laughs> and and it's only because I remember John and I sort of sitting there and and you know I looked at him and I said, you know what? I love that song hot for teacher. I thought what a cool song that is, that you know, that that kind of shuffly thing. And I'm like, we should do a song like that, you know? <laughs> so that, and then we just, you know, John and I just sort of, Oh, here, let's try this. Let's try that. And we just sort of, it just sort of was born out of that, you know, cause it was like it, you know, I mean, that, that happens so many times that you're, you're just sitting around and you go, God, I love this. Or I, you know, it could be, in, you know, I mean, when you're writing for a record, it's, it's more than anything. It's just sitting around and, chit-chatting about you know about things and about concepts of what you want to sure. do and then all of a sudden you know because I've always said this songwriting is kind of like picking a little uh, a little neutron or atom out of space you know and just sort of like oh let's try that throw it in and it's like nah it's not, not killing me you throw it back in the ether and then you pick another idea and you go oh that's cool you know and and so that was one of those that we just out of born out of conversations we sort of said okay let's you know let's uh let's try this idea so hmm. I, but but here's the the thing that's so funny because you know most people you know that that you know interviewers like yourself they'll have a, a certain snapshot in time of something that affected them mm -hmm. and then you know because I, I did an interview a while back and, and a guy was just obsessed with the Halford record mm -hmm. right and so you know that like I said that's the hard part it's like trying to 
It's like, oh yeah, I, I kind of remember that, right? <laughs> so, and then, and when you get into the weeds about, you know, sort of, you know, just the minutia of it, it's like, nah, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> but overall, you found Dave friendly, sociable, easy to work with. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, but he had a a, a lot in common with a, a lot of artists of, of that time period with a certain measure of success. There's like, you know, cause it honestly wasn't that much different than working with guys like Ozzy and people like that. I mean, they're, they're people who, you know, their brains are sort of always like bing, 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 you know, exploding with ideas, you know, and, more times than not, a good portion of my job is, is, is saying, okay, I see the synopsis sort of like ding, 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 you know, going crazy, but whoa, let's, let's sort of let's pull it back. And, yeah, let's, let's figure out how to turn all these gazillion ideas into something that is going to work in, you know, for the audience. So um that's kind of, you know, my takeaway from, from Dave was that I, you know, what a cool, interesting dude and smart as a whip, you know, and he's like very clever and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's, it's like a lot of times there's, you know, when you, when you got a brain sort of firing all over the place, you, you kind of got to figure out how to turn it into something. Right. So, and, that, and actually that was one of my, is the same sort of scenario, but um, in the early days, um, uh, I, I was in a band with the guys from Frank. I was like sort of in Frank Zappa's band, but the way it worked was because I, I never learned how to read music. So every, you know, everything to me was just sort of, you know, just the process of like, I would hear it mm-hmm. and I would immediately be able because I started really as a keyboard player Mm-hmm. you know because everybody thinks i'm a guitar player you know or actually a lot of people think i'm a bass player too because uh you know the amount of times that i've played bass on record but it was only because maybe the bass player was busy and couldn't be there to do the record and and everybody's like here bob you play bass you know it's like okay sure <laughs> so um but everybody, you know, a lot of people didn't realize that keyboard was actually my main instrument, right? But the with the Zappa dudes, they're uh, when they weren't touring, the, all of the guys got together and then they asked me to come in. And my job, literally in that band, you know, although I was playing keyboards, I was also mainly just kind of the ringmaster. You know, it's like okay all of you guys are ridiculous sick players, yeah. but it's like no one is getting what you're doing, you know? So, you know, so that was kind of my job is like, okay, that's really cool that you can do that. But here, Vinny, instead of going, it's like, why don't we do, you know, it's like, so that happens more times than not. It's just that sort of, you know, my job is the is essentially the ringmaster, if you will. My last question related to all that, and it's okay if you don't remember, but the bass tracks on the DLR band album on most of the songs, if not all of them, 
were also done by Mike Hartman, and that was under the alias Bourbon Bob. I was wondering if there was a connection between Bourbon Bob and the fact that you're Bob. No, no. <laughs> I, actually, Matt, I don't think I ever actually met him, you know, and, and, and when I say, because, you know, part of the thing I was, I think I was doing Black Sabbath at the time, mm-hmm. so I, I couldn't really do, I couldn't, you know, because trust me, Black Sabbath was a 24-7 universe, yeah. right? Darren has you covered. <laughs> yeah, so, it, it, you know, so it was more of a case of, like I said, it's, you know, John and I and, you know, whatever songwriting, you know, incarnations that happened on that. Um, that was more of, uh, you know, I just, I couldn't physically do, you know, work on anything in that record. And, and um, as a matter of fact, I'm not even sure if I heard much of that record, you know, it's like, and, and, you know, but understand something, I want to be very clear That's about awesome. it. That doesn't mean that I didn't love it and didn't care about it. Right. It just meant that my universe was so intense that um, a lot of times it's, you know, even a lot of records that, you know, a lot of times I'm, I'm in that moment mm-hmm. and then next moment, you know, and then just sort of moving on. If you're a professional golfer, you're not golfing in your downtime, most likely. I get what you're saying. You did it once. You don't mm-hmm. quite need to relive it unless you have to do research or something like that. Yeah. Well, a lot of times, you know, I mean, part of the process is, you know, you, you, you learn by mistakes, you know, and, and especially in the early days, you know, right. when I would do a record and then I'd hear it on the radio and I go, oh, God, I hate that. I hate that I didn't do that or that. And that's part of the learning curve of saying, OK, next record, I am not going to do that, you know, right. and, and just. You know, it's all, you know, God, I've been making records 50 years now, 50 years. I mean, look first... it, but that's, <laughs> thank you. That's you're a gentleman. I'm 66 years old. You're a gentleman and a scholar for saying that. But um, I made my first record in 1972. Yeah. And it's like, I'm nope. older than dirt, you know. No wonder. I, though, I, I was going to say, though, that the thing that I love the most is that after doing this for 50 years, I, I, I love the fact that I'm still making records that kids want to listen to. Yeah. You know, considering some of those kids could be my grandchildren, you know? <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Well, before I let you go, anything you want to plug or places that people should be looking for the latest and the greatest from you, at you know and and i i'm working all the time and i'm doing new records all the time and i love what i do um that you know it's like every day there's something new and and it you know i can't even keep track still after all these years and yeah and and, and but I, I think it's kind of cool though because it's one of those things when, you know, when, when listeners and, and people, they, you know, all of a sudden they look at it, oh my God, Bob Marlette did that record. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I, I still, I love that thing where, you know, guys like yourself, when, 
when you like see something and like, oh my God, he he just did that record. I had no yeah, idea. I read the liner notes. <laughs> yeah. And and I love that, you know, because that's a lost art form. Yeah. You know, because kids nowadays, man, the the way the way that kids assimilate music is so different, you know, sure. because in the old days, man, you'd buy that product, you own that product, and you would sit there and you would read. Well, that's a lost art form because now it's one click you listen you go oh okay i like that or eh, and click next click you know right. and so and there's very little you, you have to sort of be a fan in, in some respects to to do a deep dive because mm -hmm. a lot of you know a lot of kids are you know because part of it is their mindset is so you know it's like my son you know in any given moment okay he's on his computer but the tv's going and he's also listening and clicking on spotify yeah and he's playing a video game on this thing and you know it's like it's all this sort of yeah there's this bing bang boom you know so but i will give my son a plug because he's uh Please, and my man. wife because they're actually um my son and uh, wife are teaming up producing a new record now so they're actually on two records it's like so i'm uh, definitely uh passing the torch on because turns out my son's uh pretty pretty brilliant you know he's uh quite the quite the i'm, I'm very lucky that he uh the apple did not fall far from the tree so what's the name of the son and or wife's project well, Chris, Chris Marlette is my son, actually, and some fans may know, because he played, he played drums on the Red Sun Rising record, he right. did Filter and, you know, a bunch of stuff. So, you know, but the thing that, like, is, you know, a little tough for me is because he's now back in school getting his degree for gaming design because he wrote a script for a video game and it's like he's like you know what I want to program this myself you know so he's actually back doing that my wife is the uh, singer and guitar player for no small children and she's in another band where she's the drummer in the drama dolls and she did actually my wife did um for the new Ghostbusters movie, the or not the newest all one, Rod the, one or the, the, the all, all female one, the yes. all female one. She did the Ghostbusters in title credit for that. That's her and her band. And she did uh, that uh, Anna Kendrick's um, uh, uh, Blake Lively, Simple, Simple Favor, I think it's called. She did wow. the in title credit for that. So she's totally badass. My son, I'm just. I'm I'm so blessed. I'm a lucky man. Life is uh, life is pretty darn good. It's hard to complain, you know. So now there's three Marlets that we have to follow. Yeah. The latest, yeah. the latest from. Oh yeah. boy, exactly. Work. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. That's the you know the deep dive. But it, it you know it's just so funny because it, it's just you know I mean for for my son you got to remember he you know he grew up with all of these rock stars like hanging out at the house or right. him being at the studio and it's like actually yesterday we, we were uh, hanging out with some other people and and he reminded me the story of of him um rob halford was here at the studio at the house and mm -hmm. he was sitting on the couch and my son because rob would sit there you know and read the paper he had his glasses on his you know 
shaved head with the tattoos, right? And my son j used to take his little matchbox cars and go over Rob Halford's head, right? And Rob would just sit here like it was nothing. And I would look back and I'm like, Chris, come on. And it's like, and it was just the cutest, funniest thing ever. And oh, and then uh, Billy Idol took uh, Chris on a ride on his Harley and that scared wow. the shit out of me. But it was like, it was just, you know, just amazing, you know, amazing childhood. And to him though, it's like, whatever it's like you know, it's like hey man it's all good so pretty crazy pretty Bob, crazy life you know and thank you enough for all the the information and the stories and all that you shared it's it's really great to see somebody having such a long career based on talent and being a good hang and not just a good hang <laughs> thank you i i appreciate that yeah i've you know like i said i've i've been a very i've lived a charm life and i'm i'm so great because that's the other thing for me i i you know i never never lose sight of the gratitude mm -hmm. for you know for things that have happened in my life you know yes i've worked i've worked very hard but it's also you know never losing sight of the of the smile in doing it because that's oh. a that's a big thing man it's like that's I think that's one of the key reasons why I'm still doing it is that I, I you know, cause I, you know, honestly, I haven't had to make a record in years, but I just, I just love it. I'm, I'm, it still brings me pleasure. And you bring us pleasure through that music. So thank you for your time and just have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you anytime I'm around. <laughs>